just want to start by um, summarizing very briefly again much uh, some of what we've emphasized um, in the imaginal practice and then uh, open a door from that build on that elaborate um, some possibilities that come out of that in a particular direction or begin to um, open a door in a particular direction. So we've said and we've emphasized already that when we sustain attention meditatively on an image uh, sensitive to the resonance and all the richness there that we were talking about, um, we will notice effects um, with that image, from that image, on the emotional field, the emotions, and on the field, uh, the energetic field, the energy body, and also, thirdly, on the perception and sense of self, of other, of things, and of world. <clears throat> so, effects on the emotional field, on the energy body, and also on the perception sense and sense of self, other things, and world. Now these three are not separate, uh, but it's good to delineate them that way for clarity. And also again, just to point out, uh, to repeat, that when we um, focus on uh, the energy body and tune uh, to perhaps pleasant energy there, or sense of well-being, or comfort, or ease, etc. This can um, lead the energy body and the consciousness into uh, the whole range of states of samadhi uh, by tuning to what is pleasant there in the energy body. And if in the um, emotions, in the field of emotions, um, there's a pleasant emotion, for instance, happiness or um, peace or joy or um, focusing on that pleasant emotion can also lead into uh, deeper samadhi and, and the whole being kind of uh, coalesces, harmonizes in that state of samadhi, an emotional energetic state. If what's happening um, emotionally and energetically is unpleasant and difficult, then focusing on either can, it may lead to, if we if we bring the right qualities into that focusing, into that attention, it may calm the emotions and calm the energy body. So we've said all that. And we also said that um, this third aspect of, of, of the effects that we notice, the, um, the sense of the self, the perception of the self, of other things in the world, we may, um, within that, uh, it may include an awareness of, of the um, resonances um, within the resonance is a mirroring or echoing of the image and the imaginal figure in in one's personal life. And all, all kinds of examples given wrathful deity or warrior or wanderer or whatever it is. Um, and, and not to be taken literally, usually, um, but there's this echoing in the personal life. So we talked about daemons or daimons, however you say that. And there is a sense of this echoing, this mirroring, the recognition of that and the feeling of that bringing as part of what brings soulfulness in to the sense of my life and my journey and the events in my life. Um, it 
add soulfulness or I recognize I come to resonate more fully with the soulfulness that's there and nourish the soulfulness and the sense of archetypal necessity and destiny if you like or telos they're all part of that in terms of one's personal life but with this third uh, field of effects of the resonances of the images perception sense of self other things world with regard to that, we, we may also notice that there's a sense of holiness, we could say, sacredness or divinity even in the image. Uh, again, what, what do we actually mean by those words, sacred, holy, divine, etc.? Maybe we'll come back to that, if that's not too cheeky, um, to throw these words out and let them resonate without defining them too much for now. But maybe that's part of what we sense and part of the perception in the image. And this, this sense itself of holiness or divinity in the image is something we can tune into and in a way, let's say, use in different ways. Now, this is a huge, huge subject, uh, massive. Uh, so I'm just going to highlight a few of the possibilities, a few of the directions here. Because um, one possibility is to allow that sense of holiness or divinity in the image, uh, let it spread to the surroundings, and, and in that way to allow what I call cosmopoesis. Uh, it's a word I thought of, but I don't like the sound of it, and I can't think of another word. Um, what I mean by that is... Um, uh, or to explain what that word might point to, cosmopoesis, cosmo for cosmos. Cosmos is a word like world or universe, but has more the implication of the order, or if you like, the structure of the universe. So um, we talk about cosmology in the West. What, what is the nature and origin of, of the universe, etc. Um, the poesis part um, poesis is a, is a word that means really the uh, artistic creation, if you like, like making poetry, the, po the po poet, poem writing, if you like, cosmos as poem that we write as meditators, the meditator as artist, if you like, uh, creating a sense, a palpable vision, an experience of uh, a cosmos, and uh, but actually, like an artist, being able to create different cosmoses, if you like. And that creative aspect of meditation, that malleability of perception that actually can, um, with enough understanding, enough skill, uh, help us to, if you like, enter into or inhabit different cosmos, cosmoses. So it's like, it's like art, as I've explained uh, at other times. This is a huge subject, so maybe I'll find a better word at some point, but that, that's what I'm using for now, cosmopoesis. Huge, huge subject, and e easily um, a long retreat on its own. Now let's um, start a, li a little bit exploring opening that door. Sometimes, as I said, there's a sense of holiness or divinity in the image, and that can spread, and it spreads to the surroundings, the environment, the world that we're in around us as we're practicing, and uh, we feel that through that, um, we, we are inhabiting, um, if you like, 
a different world. There's a creation, if you like, of the cosmos through the perception, through the way of looking in the moment. Now, sometimes it spreads by itself. The sense from the image, the divinity, the holiness, the sacredness, the image just spreads by itself. Sometimes it's already spread in the image itself. It's already spread. Well, the image is already mixed with perception. In other words, it's not separate. It's not an image that's separate to the perception of the world in the moment. So this is one possibility related to that, or if you like, a part of that, is just the... Again, here's another word, we've used it already, the theophanic sense in the image, the image as theophany. Theophany, um, theo meaning divine or, or God, uh, phanic uh, is a word that means something like um, showing through or shining through or appearance of. So it's an appearance of a face of the divine or the divine shows through or shines through it. Um, and so sometimes we have a sense of an image, which is it could be a separate image, separate from the perception. I have my eyes shut, and this imaginal figure comes, or it could be that the perception of the world is um, appearing to us as 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 a theophany in, in different ways. So these two words are very related: cosmopoesis or theophany. But it could be that um, an imaginal figure appears to us as a divine uh, being. Let's say there's that theophanic sense of the image. The image is a theophany. And so, for example, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, or Tara, or Christ, or, or whatever. And then we can use that um, image, that imaginal figure, with all the theophany that it's imbued with, and use it, as we've said, for cultivating different Brahma-viharas, metta or compassion or joy or whatever. Um, but this figure may also not be a classical divine figure. It may be just some other human being or a teacher or a lover or a friend. Many possibilities, but they can become for us uh, a theophany, this figure, this imaginal figure, um, or this person that I know or know of, becomes for us through the imagination, through imaginal practice, they become a theophany. And then uh, we can use these, uh, either this theophanic sense or the, the cosmopoesis, the sense of cosmopoesis, um, in different ways. Now, when we do that, when that is one of the effects that happens in the perception of uh, the sense of self, other things, world. We never lose touch in practice with the the, the feeling of, of, of the emotional field and the sensitivity to that or the energy body. So that's just reiterating something we've emphasized all through the retreat. But it's this certain um, openings in the third um, field of effects, the perception, and the sense of self, other things in the world, and particularly the sense of holiness or divinity, and within that, the theophanic sense of the image, the image as theophany, or this wider cosmopoesis, or both, that I want to explore a little bit and practice, and, and look at some practice possibilities there. So again, setting that in a context of um, a, a sort of wider Dharma understanding, and again, this is something we've touched on before, but so important to 
uh, I think, have, have, a, have a Dharma view, a view, a wider view of understanding Dharma practice that supports um, opening rather than closes things down and keep them boxed in, keeps them boxed in. So within a, putting all this in a wider Dharma context, we said there are, broadly speaking, three kind of avenues of practice that, that we can explore as practitioners. We, can, uh, we have available to us and we can develop all of them. And the first might be what, what often gets called bare attention or a simple mindfulness, the sort of uh, presence or uh, mindfulness of presence to what is Real. There's usually an assumption that what we're present to then is real. And there's the simple attention, for instance, to the sensual detail of the moment, this taste, this touch, and how it, quote, actually feels, or the presence to the moment, etc. And most people are, uh, in the insight meditation tradition, very familiar with that bare attention or simple mindfulness. So that would be one mode, if you like, one gear of, of practicing, one way of looking. And then there's a second kind of uh, camp, if you like, or collection, which involves a lot of practices rather than one simple practice that have in common that they, um, excuse me, they undo fabrication, they unfabricate the uh, perception, the appearances of self, other, world, um, uh, to a much greater extent uh, than uh, simple bare attention or mindfulness practice, so-called. Um, so all the range of emptiness practices and samadhi uh, practices and, and, and metta when it goes deeply, all these practices and all those avenues um, fabricate less perception. They fabricate less experience and appearance of self, other things, dukkha, etc., so that's a whole, as I said, avenue within which there's a, there's a range of practice, the second camp of fabricating less, much less than regular um, perception, much less than uh, simple mindfulness or bare attention. Now, actually, most traditional Theravadan uh, practices in, in the Dharma have that quality in common that they fabricate less to different degrees. And in a way, you can understand the thrust, the movement of traditional Theravadan practices. For the most part, most of them actually are moving um, in the direction of the unfabricated. So all these different practices, even mindfulness, um, or the samadhi, or the metta, or looking at impermanence, or whatever it is, seeing things as not self, they have this characteristic to them that they they unfabricate. They tend, as modes of, of, of looking, ways of looking, they fabricate less to different degrees, and fabricate less and less until eventually one develops that skill um, to fabricate Nothing at all. Nothing at all is being fabricated. And there's the opening to the unfabricated, as we talked about a little bit the other day. So that's the second group of practice. The second range is is this uh, learning how to fabricate less. A little bit more and, and really radically less. And then the third group of practices would, would include, um, what, what could we say, skillful fabrication. 
so one is actually deliberately engaged in fabrication, knowing that there is fabrication going on, but in the service of something. And it's skillful rather than unconscious or, or um, problematic. That camp, this third camp of, of the practices that fabricate, includes uh, very much um, using the imagination, imaginal practice or tantric practice, uh, practices that fabricate the appearance, the perception of self, other world in different ways. So there's first is bare attention or simple mindfulness. The second is practices that actually fabricate much less and tend towards um, uh, a, a dissolution, a disappearing of appearances, a non-fabrication of appearances. They tend towards emptying out of self and of appearance. And the third um, group of practices actually fabricate skillfully in different ways, in different directions, if you like, and particularly what we're interested in using the imagination, incorporating imaginal practices being part of that, the skillful um, range of fabrication of the, of the perceptions of self, other, and world. Now, of those three camps, if you like, or directions, um, not everyone, but eventually I would say most people, if they're practicing uh, a lot and diligently and widely and deeply and, and reflecting on all these things, um, and if they really get into all this stuff, they will, most people will eventually, I think, come to a um, position or understanding where they actually see the, the second, the second and the third of those um, directions as more important than the first. So more important than this kind of um, elevation of the idea of presence or simple mindfulness or bare attention and the whole technique technology, if you like, of stress reduction that's involved in that, important as it is and valuable and necessary as it is as, as an aspect, uh, a, a, a platform as part of our path, a stepping stone, most people will, will come to regard the movement, the whole direction of movement of, of learning to fabricate much less and opening um, to that dissolution and that emptying that non-fabricating, the unfabricated, and also the skillful fabricating, the beautiful fabricating, using the imagination, tantric practices, and all that kind of thing, of the perception of self, other world. Most people regard them as much more important and fruitful and uh, richer, if you like, um, directions in, in practice than, than the first one, is bare attention simple mindfulness or so-called presence because especially um, with the last one the skillful fabrication um, it feeds the soul if you like it gives the soul if we use that language again what it wants it's um, uh, something that directly nourishes deepens opens uh, heightens and sparks the soulfulness. Uh, not that the others can't, but there's more range to that and more depth to the soulfulness in that third camp. And very much it 
serves uh, what we're talking about, this opening of the range of perception. And we learn to fabricate skillfully through different ways of looking and see how the perception, perceptions open and shift and change. This is really um, uh, moving in that direction of, of serving this opening of the range of perception, which I've stressed um, several times on this retreat, in a way that may be one of the most important things and one of the most, if you like, central ingredients of a a different way of understanding what Dharma is and what practice is and the whole movement of, of the Dharma. And if you like, um, or rather, the second avenue, this unfabricating, is also um, in the service, eventually, eventually, not only of opening to this unfabricated and the, the mystical, transcendent beauty of knowing that what is deathless, as I talked about in another talk the other day. Not only that, but also through that, through deepening in that way and then emerging out of that depth of, of non-fabrication, then also understanding emptiness through that and giving us more license, more permission, also more skill and ability to shape perception, to enjoy the malleability of perception and to open up the range of perception. So this again, everything hinging around perception and with that needing a, a, a wider view of the Dharma or a different view of the Dharma than may be um, common or, or uh, familiar to many people. But needing a wider view of the Dharma, that, uh, a conceptual framework of the Dharma that can actually hold all that, accommodate it, wherein all this makes sense. And there's a slightly different... Uh, conception of what the direction and the aspiration of the whole of Dharma practice is. So having, when we make that delineation between these three sort of avenues there, um, it immediately, as far as practice is concerned, brings up the question, well, what is it that takes a practitioner in any moment um, in one direction or another? And how would, as a practitioner, how can I steer and navigate and move between these different modes, these different avenues or directions? So most people, as I said, will be already quite familiar with that uh, practice of bare attention or simple mindfulness or presence or whatever we want to call it. But it's worth knowing, too, in, 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 in trying to... Uh, uh, understand better this whole question of navigation and steering and moving between these practices. Worth knowing too also that clinging even unconsciously to a concept of actuality, that when I'm mindful or when I'm practicing bare attention, this is the actuality of things. This is things as they are to misappropriate a phrase of the Buddha. Actually subtly, uh, or rather implicitly clinging to that concept that when I'm mindful, I'm with the actuality of things, that will actually uh, lock this um, avenue of bare attention, uh, so-called, in place. It will, it will keep it um, in place as a perception, as a way of looking. Because I believe this is reality. And, and in a way, just that subtle belief unconsciously, in the conceptual framework, as I'm practicing bare attention, 
It doesn't even need to be a conscious thought. It locks the perception in place and, and the way of looking in place and then the appearance in place. So it actually cannot um, evolve too much or change too, or, or um, develop too much. I mean, throwing this out as a as an aside, but it will be worth if if you if you want to explore this kind of thing. What's the difference um, if I'm practicing just simple mindfulness, so called, and I have uh, a subtle view that I'm being with what is real, say materiality or this or that, and just shifting that view, same practice, but just shifting the view to seeing this is appearance. This is an appearance, and that's what I'm giving mindfulness to. There's a difference between appearance and appearance assumed to be reality, or physical reality, or materiality. These are subtle views woven into the mindfulness, subtle conceptual views, usually unconscious, woven into the mindfulness. We can make them conscious and then play with um, practicing with this subtle view, and with this subtle view, and see what happens, how, how they change the experience, because it will. But if I have, um, if I'm clinging um, unconsciously, usually, to a concept of this is the actuality that I'm being mindful of, that will um, prevent the experience deepening and opening, and, and, and will limit it in a way, uh, and will also limit the understanding, and will limit the, un- the possible understanding of deeper emptiness, etc. But most people are familiar already with that simple mode of bare attention or, or mindfulness, whatever we call it. The second uh, avenue or group of practices, the, the ones that tend to fabricate much less and with that whole range of less and less fabrication, um, emptiness practices, samadhi practices, metta practices, those kind of things, compassion practices, um, it's really uh, just a matter of learning those practices and developing one's skill with them. It's just a matter of finding the right ways to practice and developing developing them and then sustaining them as ways of looking. So I need to learn this particular emptiness practice, let's say, regarding things as anattas, not self, all phenomena that arise. I, I, I slowly, gradually learn, develop the skill to regard them as anatta, as an example, as not self. And then I sustain that way of looking moment to moment as a deliberate practice. A lot of skill, a lot of subtlety involved in developing that as a practice and tremendously powerful and beautiful practice. But doing that um, and sustaining that way of looking will, uh, as an example, will tend to fabricate less and less self and, and perception of things and world and phenomena. So steering that way is a matter of just having... Uh, understanding what one's doing in, in those particular practices, developing them, and then just sustaining them as a way of looking. In the third camp, the avenue that um, actually um, engages and sustains this skillful fabrication of self, other world, and the perception of self, other world, uh, we need to recognize when that is present for us, when there is, um, if you like, uh, what, what, to use a Buddhist word, a skillful um, perception 
um, of self, other world, a different perception that's, that's actually there. Recognize when it's there and tune to it. So this is recognizing this, um, for example, holiness or divinity, recognizing the theophany, recognizing that there's a cosmopoesis there. So recognizing that quality, recognizing that perception, and tuning to that, and actually sustaining a focus on that, on, on, on that perception, on that way of looking. So whatever it is that one's doing, um, or that whatever it is that the mind and the heart are doing um, to look that way, that needs to be um, recognized and sustained gently. But often what, what actually happens in this, in this avenue is that something sparks, if you like, or triggers um, a different way of looking. A way of looking, if you like, of seeing the world through the imagination and then seeing self, other world, seeing, perceiving them as theophany or, or with, 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 with this wider cosmopoetic sense imbuing the, the perception. Something sparks that, and something in us, if you like, um, assents to that mode of being, that way of looking, by picking up that spark and tuning into that perception. So one could definitely um, uh, uh, engage, a, a, say, a tantric practice deliberately to see one's food as divine nectar, as I mentioned at one point, deliberately try and taste it that way and see it that way and smell it that way. So I'm very clear what I'm trying to do and I'm, I'm sustaining that as a sort of um, gentle uh, way of looking as much as I can. Or it might happen more spontaneously, as I said, something um, uh, something sparks in the mind or triggers uh, uh, maybe a poetic idea or may actually be a line of poetry or a fragment of music or an image or someone that we remember or think of or see who is alive for us as an image in the sense that I'm using the word image. And they can function, any of that can function as a, as a spark, a trigger, and become a kind of portal, if you like, to this um, different perception, this uh, more holy or divine perception and sense of uh, self-other world. So there, there's a something that's sparking this cosmopoesis, sparking um, a theophanic sense, if we use that word. There's so many possibilities here. But what's characteristic to any uh, cosmopoesis or practice of cosmopoesis is that it includes the surroundings. So I'm not just uh, dwelling, focusing on just this imaginal figure divorced from the surroundings around me. So we're including, whether, whether deliberately or spontaneously, the surroundings get included. Where, I, where I'm practicing, if I'm outside or in the meditation hall or whatever, the sights, the sounds, the appearance of the world around me as I'm practicing is included, whether deliberately or spontaneously. Now, that, that may mean the eyes are open, but they can also be closed, and one still has, uh, one is still really including a sense of the surroundings, an awareness of the surroundings. 
and the uh, cosmopoesis can be fed or triggered or um, born from, from an emptiness practice. Uh, from the practice of samadhi and different states of samadhi naturally bring with them as what I call after effects on perception naturally bring with them uh, either emptiness practice or practices of metta or compassion or samadhi naturally bring with them this um, cosmopoesis they actually alter the perception of the world and through that we can actually understand more about emptiness and fabrication of perception so kind of, kinds of cosmopoesis can come through all kinds of practices, all kinds of states, and there's so many possibilities. I think it's, we could say it's infinite. The possibilities for cosmopoetic perception are perhaps infinite. The range is infinite. So it could come from emptiness practices or samadhi or metro compassion. It could come, as I said, from some poetic image or idea that we are practicing with and r- resonating with. As I said, we tune, we notice the sense of holiness or divinity within within that image, with that image, and we tune to that and let that spread. And, and it becomes a kind of tantric practice, a kind of one can, for instance, see one's surroundings, sense one's surroundings, feel them as uh, a Buddha realm, to use a certain phrase, or sense them as theophany, to use that that that. Uh, word. There's so many possibilities. I'll just give a few examples here. Um, actually, I, I, I'm going to read to you an email that um, a student uh, sent me because it highlights some of the possibilities here and some of the possible directions. So um, it was quite a long email, and some, uh, she was talking about. Uh, actually beginning she was talking about emptiness practices that she was exploring with some friends as a group and going going through uh, different emptiness practices together uh, and saying that was all going really well and then she says I have been working with the imaginal quite a bit since we last spoke at Gaia the naughty child image has not returned nor the indulgent aunt but the sexual image is morphing and changing and feeding me more and more as I experiment with receiving it more fully. So I'm going to slow down and just comment on a few things. This is actually the same person you may remember from, I think, um, early on in the retreat when I mentioned that she had written me a letter while on retreat and had this experience, actually she was walking through the corridor feeling like someone was kissing her and then was a bit like, this is strange, um, but began exploring it in practice and opened up samadhi, etc., if you remember that. But here she says, the naughty child image has not returned, nor the indulgent aunt, but the sexual image is morphing and changing and feeding me more and more as I experiment with receiving it more fully. So just to say something about that, because... Sometimes the images that are more uh, have their roots in or their obvious correlation with our our um, biographical history and our childhood um, are really important for us. The naughty child or the indulgent aunt, but it's the other images that seem to have less obvious biographical um, correlation or roots in our personal history. Um, that actually uh, may last longer and be more fertile, seem to go deeper. It's almost like they come from a different dimension, if we use that uh, 
language. And she says regarding this, the more sexual image that we, we described before, the Eros is less hard now, but still very powerful. I've observed that it seems to come when the Samadhi is deepening. Occasionally it comes when I call it, like it is rescuing me when I feel overwhelmed by heaviness or pressure in the body. So that's very much uh, what we talked about already in the retreat and using images in relationship for the sake of Samadhi and um, helping to shape Excuse me, and develop what's happening in the energy body for the sake of samadhi. And she continues, It usually begins with that sensation of being kissed, and it took quite a while for me to allow myself to be kissed and to enjoy it, which feels unbelievably nourishing. Each time this image comes, or occasionally when I bring it up myself, I learn more. One part of the image involves the being that is kissing me, joining me in meditation, fusing or melting into my body. I can feel changes in the body's texture, and there is a sense of succumbing to one with greater experience. So this actually isn't relevant to what I want to talk about this morning, but I'm just mentioning that because, again, it's it's so... Um, common, this um, joining, being joined in the meditation, but fusing with or melting into my body some imaginal other that could be sometimes the, the teacher or some divine personage or something, and that affecting the whole sense of the whole experience. But it's really this next paragraph that I want to draw attention to for our purposes today. So she continues, during my meditation last night, I was imagining everything was made up of silence and holiness. Another favorite practice at the moment, she says. Um, so just to say about that, uh, there are practices, I would probably put them in, in the group of emptiness practices, where uh, one, if you like, listens to silence, listens to the silence in the mind, the silence between thoughts, the silence that pervades thoughts and pervades the body sensations, the silence that is around sounds, and even as, as one deepens that kind of practice, the silence that seems like it pervades sounds as well as thoughts. So attuning, this is the whole practice in itself, attuning more and more, listening to silence, very, very beautiful practice, deepens and deepens and deepens, and that silence becomes uh, deeper and richer and more, if you like, mystically pregnant with a sense of holiness, very, very beautiful practice in itself. And she puts, I was imagining everything was made up of silence. What will happen if you do that practice of listening to silence and, and you develop it, one will actually have the perception of everything being made up of silence and holiness. It will come very organically, naturally out of that practice deepening. She's using the word imagining. So one can have a little taste of that and kind of trigger it through the imagination, which may be what she's referring to. And then she continues, I was really feeling the spaciousness of looking in this way, and everything was very soft. And then the sexual image came, and also a feeling behind the eyes of tears at several points. The emotion in the tears was of being moved, and of touching something sacred. So there's not tears of sadness, or uh, something like that, or grief. It's of being moved. There's a difference. Touching something sacred. This fusing of the sexual with the sacred is new. Usually I work with them both, but separately. So that was her report. And it sounds like, from that um, email, 
I didn't get the chance to talk with her after this, unfortunately, but it sounds like there's the possibility from this place of the sexual and the sacred um, fusing in her experience. There's the possibility very much like a threshold for that to evolve so that um, this erotic image that she's been working with so skillfully and developing um, can actually expand to uh, a, a wider sense of uh, a wider perception of sacredness in the world, and maybe also eros in the world. This is a whole huge subject. And that would be different than just um, the, the perception of silence as holiness uh, that she was alluding to before and I described. Here it's through an image, and a particularly erotic image, and that opening up, um, actually widening into a cosmopoesis where the whole it starts to imbue the whole perception of the world as, as sacred. In a, in a very particular way. As I say, this is such a huge subject, that one in itself, but, but that would be uh, one possibility. And just to offer a few more possibilities, to give, give you a sense of the range of what's possible here, or the beginnings of what's possible at least. So some people practice mantra meditation, the repeating inwardly of um, certain uh, holy syllables or, or mantras or phrases. And so here, perhaps uh, practicing at first, hearing the mantra internally as a theophany. So the mantra itself, hearing it internally, but hearing it as, if you like, divine speech or the cosmic uh, primordial sound or whatever. So uh, Implicit in hearing it as a theophany inside, um, internally, so to speak. Implicit in that is there's usually um, a conceptual framework of what is sacred, but it's usually vague. This is something that I will return to later. So implicit in the practice, hearing internally as theophany, is a vague um, conceptual framework of the sacredness of it. Practicing hearing the mantra that way internally with this sense of sacredness, of theophany, and then letting it spread. And again, it might spread naturally, but letting it spread so it feels like it's not just coming from within, but it's pervading the world, pervading the air, pervading the cosmos, pervading nature. And then, then one has a kind of uh, cosmopoesis where the mantra is again imbuing uh, the, the, the whole world, the whole cosmos. And sometimes, uh, amazing, and we've touched on this before, um, even something that happens in meditation that is a distraction can end up sort of taking a turn uh, or or in a way, we can notice something in, in, a, in a distracted thought, for example, that um, it has a theophanic sense within it. We notice that, oh, I thought I was distracted, but actually it's got another quality to it when I, when I notice it and I pay attention to it in a different way. So even within distractions, sometimes we can notice uh, a gold, a treasure there. There's a, in this case, particularly what I want to emphasize is that the theophanic sense, the expression of divinity, if you like, in, in the very distracted thought or idea or whatever. And that's something then we can notice, tune to, and allow and open to. So, um, an example of this, it's maybe for some people a strange example, but um, because I 
was a jazz musician for some years, and um, I used to play jazz electric guitar, and so were working so much at that in the past, um, sometimes, I mean, happened a lot in, in the past when I was actually a, a musician, that one often has, um, it's as if a part of the mind is just improvising music all the time and um, improvising these m melodies and jazz lines, if you like, and because one knows the guitar, one's actually seeing, if you like, the, the image of the guitar and where the fingers would go, and it all just is happening kind of spontaneously by itself in the mind and it's I mean, sometimes it's very creative sometimes it's just a sort of thing that's going on and so I was meditating um, and I noticed that that was going on and uh, I couldn't it, it felt a little sticky as a distraction it's like oh I let go of it but it still was there I let go of it, it still was there and then I was noticing oh I can actually hear those uh, that that those musical uh, lines being improvised, I can actually hear it right now um, in a certain way as, um, or play with hearing it a certain way as if the, that music that the, if you like, the mind was creating, the mind was hearing inside, I can hear it as mirroring um, or as an analog of the endlessly creative musical cosmos. So uh, there's a whole uh, kind of world of idea quite vague wrapped up in that way of hearing the vague idea of somehow the essence of the cosmos is somehow or at some level a kind of music um, and the vague idea that um, the different human musical laws and its different systems and different cultures those laws of music somehow mirror um, the, the cosmic or divine laws. This is all very vague and, and subtle ideation. So I know there are those ideas out there in the world. Um, in, in the meditation it felt really not like a rigid or a clunky idea. There was something very subtle about, about this um, hearing and this um, loose, vague ideation that was also very subtle. Um, it was quite fluid and not um, kind of some clunky metaphysical system. Um, so what, what I'm talking about here is uh, the, the, the shift in the hearing of what was initially a distraction in the meditation um, opened a really subtle meditative sense. Part of what was involved with that was a kind of relaxing of the mind's clinging or, or aversion to or narrow focus on the music that was in the mind. And the attention kind of suffusing a little wide, including the energy body, as we keep stressing, including this sense and attuning to the sense of the wider cosmic theophany uh, that was that was with this um, this hearing of this music in in this in this subtle way, and and also the attention was with the the very subtle and vague idea of this um, music of the cosmos and the way that human music um, echoes or mirrors or expresses the divine and, and the cosmos. I may come back to this image later um, because in different ways it might illustrate uh, something, so we'll see. 
but that would be maybe for some people a quite strange example but uh, I don't know um, of a way that actually can pick up on something even in a distraction and tune to the, the sense of the theophany there and the implicit cosmopoesis that can sometimes open up with that and, and actually what was distraction becomes a very beautiful subtle meditation that one then sustains the attention on and very very uh, fruitful in that respect very beautiful and uh, it's possible that a person um, uh, who we, if you like, see imaginally um, can become for us a theophany, a face of the divine. They become, if you like, an angel. And Colban talks about the angelic function of beings. So this is... Um, very possible, especially when there's eros. I don't just mean sexual sexual attraction. I'm, I'm, I include that, but I mean more. Especially when there's eros in 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 the uh, relating to and, and way of seeing that person, and especially where there's um, imaginal practice and imagination imbuing that perception, and and the logos, the conceptual framework supports it. Um, very possible for a person. Um, that we love to become for us a theophany, an angel, to fulfill a kind of angelic function for our soul, for the psyche. And then there's a seeing of divinity in that person. But this is a different kind of um, sensing of divinity. It's a different mode than, say, seeing all beings as, say, uh, uh, w- one or partaking of the oneness of things, whether that oneness is the mystical silence or a oneness of um, cosmic love or the oneness of awareness or whatever it is. Different kinds of oneness share in in that they, um, if you like, they erase or dissolve the particularity of the personhood, the unique personhood. So this kind of sense, what I'm, what I'm wanting, so that's all, that's wonderful, you know, that kind of sense of a, a, a divine oneness that includes all beings, that's absolutely wonderful, and it will come out of, actually it will come out of standard meta practice if you do it long enough in certain ways, it will come out of different pra- ways of practicing with awareness and with silence, as we've talked about. But I'm, right now I'm after something different, a way of... Uh, sensing divinity, sensing another person as theophany, as angel, but um, in a way that, if you like, includes or retains their personhood, their particularities and their uniqueness. Even though each person might be, if you like, might appear to us as not just one kind of theophany, but multiple. So one person, when when the imaginal practice is really rich, um, in regard to a person that we love and when there's the eros there and when there's the conceptual framework opening and supporting it um, one person can be if you like uh, different angels to us they appear as different theophanies and all of them retain their personhood their particular uniqueness it's not this dissolution into oneness but then that particular theophany uh, can spread to the world as well that's actually a huge subject and, and uh, again, something that one could easily spend um, a, a long retreat on or, or write a book on. I'm just mentioning it now as, as a possibility. 
So some of the possibilities here can actually be very, very simple. Um, so a retreat in a while ago told me, shared, um, he was enjoying reading a little poetry on his um, retreat and was reading a Hafiz poem. I can't remember the exact line from the poem that triggered it, but it was something about um, Hafiz saying, all things are gifts from the divine or gifts of the divine or, or the beloved, using the word beloved as a, as a synonym for the divine. Note also again that when when there's the word beloved, there's the um, inclusion of the erotic component in regard to the divine. Calling the divine the beloved introduces, allows, supports um, the, the the eros in relation to the, the sense of um, the divine. So this this poem says something. All things are gifts from the, from the, the beloved, the divine, and that line um, touched his heart. And opened his heart, and and um, one can actually uh, it, it became, if you like, a, a poetic idos, a poetic idea, which became a, became a poetic way of looking. And that's what we're in the business of here. We're in the business of cultivating these different ways of looking again. So the heart was touched, was opened, and and the idea there, all things are gift, are gifts from the beloved, from the divine. Um, entered and transformed the way of looking so that actually things were perceived that way it wasn't just a cute line of poetry actually it became a meditation it became a perception he was seeing and sensing things that way and then we were talking about gently encouraging um, a sustaining of that way of looking so the heart connected and perhaps you know just dropping in like a whisper now and then the memory of that of that line of poetry and and letting it transform the way of looking and then sustaining that way of looking just very gently very lightly without clinging too tightly to it and doing that and joy comes in this case in this case joy came him rapture came physical bliss definitely a sense of beauty and depth in in the sense of the things of the world there was cosmopoesis happening he was at that point, if you like, experiencing, inhabiting a different cosmos than the, the regular one that he felt he, he inhabited. Or, so that would be a very simple way of, 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 um, of triggering, if you like, or encouraging this kind of cosmopoetic perception. Or it might be that Organically, um, one is one is practicing meditation, and uh, some kind of poetic idea um, that has a cosmo cosmopoesis implicit in it um, just arises spontaneously in one's mind. So I remember um, some months ago uh, doing standing meditation outside in the early morning sun uh, beneath the beautiful trees we have here at Guy House. And uh, really um, opening to the sense of the surroundings and everything. And this um, phrase, I am prayer, came to me. I am prayer. What does that mean? I am prayer. Um, it came out of the sensibility in the moment. And it also fed a sense of self in the moment. I am prayer. So it's a very, what, what am I? I am prayer. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a poetic idea. 
I mean, it has all kinds of resonances. I could probably say a lot about it. I don't mean, that, that phrase definitely didn't mean I am prayer as in supplication, as in asking God for this or that favor and sorting this or that out in my life. Prayer as something much deeper, much uh, wider and mysterious in the range of its meanings. Prayer as praise rather than supplication or asking for wishes to be fulfilled, my wishes to be fulfilled. Even wider than praise. I cannot get to, to the bottom of what that means, prayer, and certainly not to the bottom of what it means to, to, to entertain the idea, the poetic idea, I am prayer. And letting that be there in, in the consciousness and letting it have its effect, the effects of this poetic idea on the perception, on the way of looking, and the beauty and the depth that that opens up, opened up, and, and that opened up a sense actually of the cosmos and the earth, the very earth and the trees and the ground and the sunlight as prayer. Not just I am prayer, but all this is prayer somehow. And what does it mean? I don't know. I don't have to figure out what it means. I have to open to that cosmopoesis. Another possibility would be to practice, um, say, with, with breath meditation, and practice feeling or conceiving or imagining um, the breath uh, as the breath of God or a God or a goddess. So what is this, this breath that comes in and out, either in the anatomical way of air or the whole energy breath that we were talking about earlier, at the beginning of the retreat? What, what would it be to play with... Um, conceiving of that, imagining it, feeling it as the breath of God or the breath of the goddess. Or perhaps, what is it to breathe with the beloved? To breathe with the beloved. So breathing together. And who is that beloved? It's an imaginal figure. It may be a lover in one's human life. It may be some other figure that there is this deep love for. It may be the divine in some face, some form. And again, if there's eros there, it's really okay. It might be a very, um, in some sense, erotic um, uh, motion and way of relating to breathe with the beloved in the imagination. Maybe with that there's a real sense of blessedness that comes. Probably, because it involves the breath and that, that kind of opening, it's probable that that kind of imaginal work like that, feeling, conceiving of the breath that way, um, probably will invite um, the possibility of a, a kind of surrender, surrendering to being breathed with, by the beloved or breathing with. A kind of opening, abandoning, all of which are, um, if you like, um, aspects of the energy body, but also aspects of the whole being, the emotionality, the whole psyche, the whole consciousness. So we can gently introduce some um, imaginal idea or concept or, or just the image there, and, and play with, kind of navigate, ride it. What does it feel like it wants to open and do in the energy body, in the emotion, but also in the perception? Another example, one might um, hear 
for instance, the bird song or the wind or some other element of sound in, in the natural world or around us, hear that as mantra. So that is the mantra. And what does mantra mean? Well, it could be divine speech, it could be sacred vocalization, it might have some other meaning. So there's no real formula for any of this. It's very improvised. What, what kind of way of conceiving, very loosely, usually very vague, um, or quite vague, um, way of hearing, um, hearing birdsong and wind gives it or imbues it with that sense of holiness. So we're just gently supporting, inclining um, the attention and also the, the way of looking, the way of relating, the way of conceiving, so that it opens up this uh, cosmopoesis or a cosmopoesis. Or what would it be to hear the bird song, hear the wind as love, as metta, as uh, the, the compassion of the bodhisattvas? compassion of the cosmic Buddha, the compassion of the cosmic Christ. Or hear the birdsong, the wind, or whatever it is, as, as the devas, the angelic beings, praising, singing joy. And these angelic beings, they're imaginal figures. I may not see them. They, they, their being and what they actually are, what they constitute, that, that may remain quite vague to me, no problem. The specificity that's important there is, is the shift in perception, the hearing in a certain way. It may not be the, um, the actual imaginal figure that gets clear, this angelic being or deva or whatever. You understand? So either um, spontaneously these things arise, these shifts in perception arise, and then we can cultivate them or deliberately, but it's possible um, that the, the self, ourselves, uh, or the human beings around us, or the animals, or the birds, or the surroundings, the trees, the grass, the land, the light, the nature, actually even with practice, or when it goes very deep, even the plastic artifacts that may be around us, man-made plastic things that seem uh, may seem to conventional perception very unholy. Even that can, even those things, this, this sense of theophany, they can become theophany too, or part of a wider cosmopoesis. But it's possible that all this um, self, humans, nature, surroundings, or specific trees, for instance, specific animals or whatever, um, can be uh, perceived, seen, sensed as, um, if you like, angelic. And again, um, keeping that word quite open, not really filling out what it means, and maybe later we'll do, uh, do that, fill it out a bit more. But maybe just to say now, it means that they are not just one-dimensional um, material. There's there's a, a verticality being introduced into the uh, of other dimensions, if you like, um, in, into the into the cosm into the cosmology. So it's interesting, you know. I, 
one could, I suppose, with, with a lot of practice, actually do a little exercise um, and practice sustaining different ways of looking at, say, self and other. So just in terms of human beings, what is it to see someone, uh, one's own self or another, as a biological machine? And their consciousness, my consciousness, as just a, 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 what they call an epiphenomenon, uh, something that arises just out of the right combination of matter over time, consciousness emerges. That's quite a popular view these days, if you like. Sometimes it's a... Um, Consciously articulated view, sometimes it's a subliminal view. Now, that itself could be seen as amazing. That there's a there's a wonder in that, just that that that, that, that possible in that view, or it could be more, um, if you like, uh, a bit nihilistic. Um, compare that or add to that sometimes um, Joanna Macy talks about um, deep time um, this sense of this biological machine evolving over all this time and eon, not eons, but uh, billions of years in fact um, the evolution of life on earth and how we, we share roots uh, our biology shares roots. And in a way, what we are now uh, is connected through all that time with everything that we have evolved through. And for some, there's a kind of holiness, there's a kind of holiness in, in that uh, way of looking, introducing that idea of deep time. self or the other and see in terms of the classical um, Buddhist uh, elements that either the four elements earth, air, fire, water or six elements those four plus adding space and consciousness and as I said I think um, near the beginning of the retreat this this as a way of looking at actually is not one way of looking because in itself it can be directed uh, as all of these they can be directed with with different flavorings so one can look at oneself or another in those terms. It's purely a kind of deconstructive way of looking. It's taking apart, seeing there isn't much self there, and a way of letting go of clinging to the, a person or to their body or lust or whatever. Or one may look at, in terms of these four or six elements, and see the interconnectedness of this person, this self or that person, with nature and with each other. These elements flow porously between um, person, self, and and world. Or again, same, same concept, but given a different spin, one actually sees the, um, through a lens that feels uh, the holiness of the elements. They're quite different ways of looking within that, or with the aggregates, the five aggregates of, of, of that Buddhism sort of uh, sets up as, a, uh, as, as ways of looking, body, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Again, that can be taken in, a, in or, or rather the, using that as a conceptual framework um, can it's not one way of looking, actually several different ways of looking, depending on how one's flavoring it. Again, it can be, be directed or in, 
work as a kind of deconstructing of, of the self or the person to, so that we don't cling so much to the self or to other selves. It can also be seen um, uh, in, in terms of seeing, again, the interconnectedness of these aggregates. Same, the aggregate, uh, the aggregates that I have here are not really that different from the aggregates that you have there. Consciousness is consciousness. Body is body. Moments of Vedana are moments of Vedana. What's the difference? So as a way of breaking down the sense of separation, giving more of a sense of interconnectedness, that, that takes that conceptual framework of the elements and it creates a, a different way of looking um, than just a kind of deconstructive, uh, as a deconstructive tool. Or again, if you've done a lot of emptiness practices, what is it to um, see in terms of the aggregates, but know that those aggregates themselves are empty, they are fabrications. Or even further, to see them as divine. They are empty, divine uh, uh, phenomena, if you like. The aggregates are empty and divine. So these are all different ways of looking within, within um, uh, a conceptual framework that allows actually within it um, slightly different conceptual frameworks that form ways of looking. But apart from that very last one, where, where there's a sort of awareness that aggregates themselves as empty or divine, or perhaps the elements as holy, um, this idea that we're talking about today of actually seeing self or seeing other as angel, as theophany, as an emanation, if you like, of the divine, and everything that's implied there about perhaps um, a vertical dimension that we've mentioned, we haven't talked about too much, um, or the different levels of being, that would be different than seeing more in terms of interconnectedness or uh, just the pure materiality of things. It's different. But there are... Um, with any way of looking, there's a kind of cosmopoesis that's going on here. And involved in, in that way of looking is, a, is, in any way of looking of, of these that I've delineated, is, is a conception, usually unconscious, of, of what matter is and what the cosmos is. So I don't know if anyone would actually do that as an exercise. You, you could play with it, and there's no reason why not. But, but I'm, I'm really trying to point out there's different ways of conceiving, and some of them um, allow more of a sense of holiness and divinity, and that's different than purely interconnectedness, uh, purely a, a sense of interconnectedness, which is a more horizontal connection between things. But basically, what we're doing, again, if in practicing something like this, this or opening to this uh, cosmopoesis, is we're playing with uh, um, eidos, if you like. We're playing with the imagination and ideas, loosely, to, to create ways of looking. We're playing with ways of looking. It's worth mentioning, as part of that, you, one will notice um, that the... Um, perception of the world through this um, uh, or, or of another through these different lenses or, or when, when one's playing with this kind of theophanic sense or cosmopoiesis the, the, the perception will, will appear at different registers we've talked about this before 
So it might be, for instance, um, very ethereal. The whole world might seem very ethereal and insubstantial and kind of luminous, or it might just look like it ordinary looks, or it looks ordinarily and kind of more solid. So just just mentioning that is something to notice, and. Um, one can sometimes feel, oh yeah, it wants to be at this register. The perception wants to be at this register. Just allow it to be at that register. And when we talk about a more uh, angelic or theophanic perception, it's not necessarily the case that that um, sees everything and perceives a more ethereal substance or perceives that higher register. It's not necessarily the case. But we're, we're to, to stay again, we're playing with ways of looking. We're playing with idos. And the sacredness here, we recognize this is not independent of the mind and the heart. The sacredness that we perceive and that we feel so deeply sometimes is not independent of the mind and the heart. The chitta, the mind, heart, the conceptual framework, the way of looking gives sacredness to the perception. It gives sacredness to appearances. It gives sacredness to things. It sacralizes things, if that's the right word. Sacralizes. Now, if we say that, and if one hasn't um, perhaps explored emptiness enough, or someone one immediately thinks, oh, so what that really implies is that they're not sacred, really. One tends to think that way, but no, it does not imply that. Because we are not buying into the sort of usual Cartesian split of mind and matter, subject or object. There's a different understanding underpinning all this. We understand that nothing, no thing, has independent existence, has an existence independent of the way of looking. And that uh, gives a different status to the perception of holiness. The holiness is not separate from the chitta. But that doesn't mean uh, that it's not real. So there's parallels here um, with when we're talking about the primordial wisdom awareness, the Buddha nature. And that awareness itself, that primordial awareness, wisdom awareness itself being um, something that's holy and empty, and also not separate from the divinity that it sees, the objects that it sees. So here too, the objects of awareness and the awareness and the sense of sacredness, none are separate. Objects, awareness, sacredness, not separate, and all of them are empty. And it's the understanding of emptiness that's part of what allows the sacredness and the validity of the sacredness. So in practice, um, with this uh, theophanic sense, um, or the sense of theophany in an image, or an image as theophany, or the theophany in the perception of the world, um, just to point out a few things a lot, uh, regarding practice. A lot of this is actually intuitive, but, but it's good to spell it out as well in case we um, get a bit lost and just to be a bit clearer. So, in a way, what it rests on is an openness at least to that um, 
uh, experience being a possibility for us and also to an openness to the whole thing conceptually to some degree of openness and receptivity to, to these ex kinds of experiences and these kinds of ideas may be necessary and then, so that's one second is the recognition of that theophanic sense in an image or in the perception of another or of the world we need to recognize it when it's there and then that's second and the third we need to tune to it so it's actually something with ah um, this has to do as I said with what is the specificity that's important to any image remember when we talked about imaginal uh, practice and instructions there so we're tuning to the theophanic sense because that's something quite specific has a certain flavor a certain tone a certain um, character or expression it's a certain kind of theophany we tune to it Remember we talked about tuning being one of the aspects of attention. This tuning to the theophanic sense, the theophany. And that tuning to allows that sense, allows the, the theophany, if you like, the sense of the theophany, the flavor of it to filter out, to um, it stabilizes it, it also amplifies it within the larger perception, within the wider perception. It may still be quite subtle, but the tuning to it makes it stronger and stabilize it, stabilizes it. And then, in a way, um, fourth, we're assenting to this theophany, this theophanic sense. It doesn't necessarily mean I literally believe it concretely. I don't literally believe that birdsong is sacred text. I don't literally believe that my lover is, um, uh, you know, God or, or whatever it is. In, that, in a very sort of literal sense, in a literal, a concrete sense of what God might be. But there's an assenting to something. There's an assenting to the view, the experience, and the idea within it. And then focusing on that, and opening to this sense of the theophany, focusing on the theophanic sense and the image, and opening to it and its resonances. And... and Often, sometimes, letting it spread, letting it spread um, and to become uh, a cosmopoesis, letting it spread to the sense of the world, the perception of one's surroundings and, and the cosmos. So one feels, one senses oneself in, in, a, uh, in a different cosmos, if you like, or rather this, this cosmos transubstantiated. And again, um, a literal believing of that is not necessary. We're not really talking about belief here. It's difficult for some people to understand that. So an openness to the whole notion and, and the possibility of experience, a recognizing of the theophany, attuning to it, and assenting to it, focusing on it, opening to it and its resonances, and then letting it spread, letting it spread. And when there's distraction, if there is distraction, which there usually will be, we can perhaps lightly remember the original image and again open to the theophany there and just do, do the same thing, do the same steps, if you like. Maybe the original image disappears uh, and there's just the wider sense of theophany, the wider sense of cosmopoesis, if it's coming originally from a sort of separate image. 
Or maybe the original image stays, and 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 that stays at the same time that there's this wider cosmopoesis, this wider theophanic sense. Let's stop here for now. So I'm just really wanting to um, give examples of and point um, in in the direction of what, what we're talking about here and give an idea of some of the possibilities. There's actually so many. Give an idea of some of the possibilities and we'll talk more about this whole area and direction later. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.